perhaps the most important tool in my pastoral counseling toolbox is a coin. Heads or tails, which will it be? There's something about facing a big decision that makes us feel like we're stuck. That no matter how much we think about it, no matter how much we plan about it, we just can't figure out how to make the right decision. And my gift, I think, that I'm supposed to give people who come to me for advice is to assure them that no matter which choice they make, everything will work out just fine. Heads or tails, which is it? If you've spent all the time that you can thinking through your options, thinking about the decision you have to make, if you've sought the counsel of friends and even your priest, maybe some other professionals who have insights to share, if you've got all the perspective you can get and you still can't figure out which is right, it's probably because you've got two really good decisions to choose from. Which will it be, heads or tails? Does it matter? And how does believing and trusting that no matter what decision we make, everything will work out fine, how does that thought, that idea, begin to free us up to live into whatever possibility is in front of us? I see that unfolding in this story from the Acts of the Apostles, which is one of my absolute favorites. The 11 apostles and the other believers have gathered together in Jerusalem, They've seen the risen Jesus ascend into heaven, and they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. But before God's Spirit can come and breathe through them and empower them to carry the good news of Jesus Christ to the end of the world, they have to do something first. They have to get the community back together again. They have to reconstitute the 12, the 12 disciples. Now, the 12 apostles. Apostles means sent one. Jesus has sent them out. But before they can go, they have to get back to 12. Judas had turned aside to his own way, as Peter put it in his prayer. It was time to bring the 12 back together again. And I think the 12, the 11, felt that impetus for a couple of reasons. Partly because 12 is such a good number, isn't it? It's a whole number. It's a complete number. It's a round number. In the Jewish tradition, it represents fullness. And one of the earliest Christian traditions was that the 12 apostles reminded the world of the 12 tribes of Israel. There are connections there to be made. And you can't represent 12 if there are only 11 of you. But I think it's more than that. I think those 11 apostles needed healing. I think they were wounded, wounded deeply from the inside because one of their 12, one of the 12 whom Jesus himself had chosen, had broken ranks, had betrayed their master, had turned his back on everything they stood for. That kind of wound runs deep. The resurrection of Jesus had pushed aside any argument that a real Messiah would have known better than that, would have chosen a better disciple than that. But surely, surely the community was looking for another reason to leave those doubts behind. And so when the time came, they gathered together and said, let's make us whole again. 
And how did they do that? They assembled the qualified candidates. They held a series of televised debates, a series of primary elections that narrowed the list to two candidates, and then we all cast a secret ballot and figured out who Judas' Judas's replacement would be. No, that's not how it went. As strange as that process is in our own time, even stranger what we read here, the church reaches its first big crossroads. The biggest decision the way of Jesus had ever known. And how do they make that decision? They cast lots. They figure out who the qualified candidates are. They say a prayer. And then they draw straws. Was it luck? Was it magic? Was it faith? What is it about lots, or more importantly, about God and about the apostles that led them to let go of the need to talk it out and figure the answer out for themselves? What, what gave them permission to let go of this huge, momentous decision and to trust that whatever lot was cast, it would be the right one? Think about lots, drawing straws, throwing dice, flipping a coin. God's people have used that way of making decisions for a long, long time. Leviticus, we read that the two goats who are brought to the Lord on the Day of Atonement, one of them will be sacrificed and the other will be let go. Which one? It depends on which lot is drawn. In Deuteronomy, we read that when God's people move into the land of Canaan and it was time to decide which part of the land would go to which tribe, they cast lots. When it was time to send soldiers into battle, we read in Numbers that again, they chose lots to decide who would go and fight. Even in the New Testament, we read in Luke how Zechariah, the priest, John the Baptist's father, it was his turn to go and offer the appointed sacrifice. And how did he know it was his turn? Because the lot fell on him. And look at what happened to him. But all of those moments, all of those decisions seem like the kind of decisions that you could make without needing to know all the options, without needing to weigh them carefully. A lot of that is just random assignment. Would we say the same about choosing the next apostle in the church? Before we get too far down that road, remember that God's people didn't think casting lots was magic. This isn't a seance. This isn't a medium. Those are outlawed. God's people have made it clear through all the centuries that God's people don't use that kind of magic to figure out what God wants. There's the notable exception of the Urim and Thummim, those things that the high priest wore in the ephod around his neck, which is a whole other conversation. But by the time Jesus and the apostles are there, they'd set that aside as being rather outdated. So what we've got isn't magic, it's trust. Somehow, when those apostles got together and said, Lord, show us what you want, and drew lots, they did so not believing that God would reach down and change the outcome, but instead, far more powerful than that, they believed that whatever the outcome was, God's will would be revealed through it. What kind of faith in God is that? How beautiful is that. 
This story from Acts isn't about a primitive decision-making model. And it's not about a primitive understanding of God, that God's will is most fully seen at a roulette wheel. No, this is a story about believing that God's loving plan for us is bigger than any decisions that we would make. It's a passage about trusting that no matter which way we turn, God will be there. That even when we mess it up in a really big way, it's going to be okay because we can't mess it up so big that we would escape God's love for us. That's a different way of believing in God, a way that gives me hope. Here at St. Paul's, once a year, we choose leaders for our church in a group we call the vestry. We don't cast lots for the vestry, but we could. And if we did, the church wouldn't crumble. And more important than that, even if the church did crumble, God's reign in the world would not fall apart. Because God's love for the world is bigger than that. God's love for us is bigger than any decision we would make, right or wrong, heads or tails. I need a God who loves me like that to make it through any decision that I would make. That's good news. No matter how bad our choices are, we can't choose our way beyond God's loving care. We might as well flip a coin. That's not faith in luck or chance. It's faith in a God who loves us more than we can imagine. Thanks be to God. Amen.